the thoughts of the day. Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not light, long life bring understanding? I haven't reached that age yet. You haven't reached that age. Well, 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 if it'll make you feel any better, I have. And uh, th today's lesson, seriously, is uh, is a part of that. Um, I think I mentioned on day one of this thing that uh, uh, this lesson series has, has, has meant more to me than it will to you, more than it could possibly mean to you, because my understanding of the Bible has been increased tremendously by uh, this series of lessons, and today is certainly no uh, exception. And uh, uh, those few words from Job just, just fit right in for, uh, for me today anyway. Um, I would invite you to slide in a little bit closer, but it doesn't matter. If you're comfortable sitting where you are, you may continue to sit there. And Jim, if you can hear me way back in the back, that's all right, too. If you need to sit on the floor, lean on the wall, that's okay, too. Okay, um, in our first session, I talked about uh, some books that I was using I really found useful in this series. And uh, one of them was um, a Bible handbook by a fellow named Holly, H-A-L-L-E-Y. Um, I mispronounced his name in the first session. I called him Haley. And uh, um, where's Ann Douglas? Okay. Well, Ann corrected me. I think Martha Jane also corrected me. Uh, how uh, is it? I thought it was. You thought it was Haley? That's what my grandmother called it. Well, Ann. Um, <laughs> the reason I mentioned this is that Ann Douglas says, um, here she is. Come in, Ann. We're talking about you. Um, Ann seriously has had a personal relationship with the Hawley family. And Ann, am I pronouncing it correctly? Is it Hawley, H-A-L-L-E-Y? Not Haley. It's Hallie. Hallie? Hallie? Hallie. Like Hallie's Okay. Okay. And... Um, I thought I'd made a major discovery when I found this thing at home, and, and uh, it, it really belonged to Martha's mother at one point in time, and we, we inherited it. And it's been a, a very valuable resource. Um, but uh, lo and behold, after I mentioned it in the first se session, I found that several of you in the class have used this little book, and it's uh, it's a real asset. Well, the one we've got is very old. Um, Ann Douglas brought her. Uh, copy in, and it's uh, uh, it's been reissued. I think the original publication of this book goes back to 1927, long time ago. Um, but it's still currently in print. Um, the edition that uh, uh, the current editions are 24 or something like that. It's just a very popular book. Um, I mentioned that the one that we have is very old, so I got on Amazon to see if I could find a newer edition. And, and, and lo and behold, uh, it is available on Amazon. I wanted to pass that on to you. Um, I think mine's 2000, isn't it? Yeah, yours is 2000. Um, this, is, this is the one that Ann Douglas has, um, and it's dated 2000. And I don't know what edition it is, but anyway. It was the great-great-granddaughter who revised it. And I taught her child. That's how I got the book. Okay, okay. The Wickers. Yeah. All right. Revised it, yeah. This, this one is available on Amazon for about $10. Um, this one, and this is this is the one that I bought, is available on, on Amazon for about $15. Uh, 
Um, same, same wording in both of these books. Uh, this one has colored maps and a little bit larger print. Uh, this, but it's the same text material, word for word, as you'd find in this one. So I just wanted to pass that on to you. I, I found it to be an excellent re resource book. If you're interested in a good Bible handbook, uh, go to Amazon and you can find these things relatively cheap. Okay, uh, thought for the day. We've, we've got past that one. Uh, I really thought that this was an appropriate uh, Bible verse for a senior adult Bible study, but it surely does fit in with uh, my experiences on putting this material together. Um, I want to start out by quoting Mr. Holly, not Halley, 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 thank you, Ann. And Halley. And in, in the book, there is a section specifically referring to uh, messianic prophecies that are not attributed to uh, the prophets, and that's the subject of today's lesson. And this is the introduction to that. Um, and Let's just read through that. The Old Testament was written to create an anticipation of and to pave the way for the coming of Christ. It is a story of the Hebrew nation dealing largely with history and events of its own times. But all through the story there runs an unceasing expectancy and prevision of the coming of one majestic person who will rule and bless the world. This person, long before he arrived, came to be known as the Messiah. Um, and that's what excited me about this series uh, from the very beginning, is the, the common thread that goes throughout the Old Testament and is continued into the New Testament about becoming Messiah. Um, first session I mentioned that Jim McCormick had taught a CUC lesson around the, the point that the Bible from one end to the other is a continued story of God revealing himself to man. And that's very much borne out in, uh, in this lesson, uh, this uh, uh, quote here from uh, uh, Mr. Halley. I got it right. Good deal. It's going to be a good day. Okay. We, we know who the Messiah is, but I thought it was interesting to understand that the Messiah really is a Hebrew word that means the anointed one. In Greek, in Greek, it's translated as Christ, and of course that's the, um, the the term that we use in our language today. But if we look at uh, uh, the Hebrew, it would be Messiah, and it meant the Anointed One. Uh, today's lesson, we talk talk about the messianic prophecies that are found not in the Bible in the, in the Old Testament, but not attributed to the prophets. Last week we talked about. The, the prophets, primarily Isaiah, and the first week, if you'll recall, we talked about the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel relating to the New Covenant, because I wanted to establish a firm foundation, not only for the New Covenant, but also the importance of the Babylonian exile. And if you'll recall, uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah that we talked about a good bit last Sunday, was very instrumental in preserving Jerusalem from the Assyrians to give a couple of hundred years in there before the Babylonian exile so that the Hebrew people could try to get their act in order and we could finalize a little bit more of the Hebrew scriptures before the beginning of the Babylonian exile. Um, very important events. And uh, uh, we see the hand of God in uh, those, especially in the defense of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was under siege. It was about to fall uh, at the hands of the Assyrians. 
and God bailed them out. And they went on to live for another few hundred years. Okay. Um, we look at the Old Testament for prophecies that are not related to the prophets, and there are literally dozens of them. And a lot of them begin in Genesis. And we'll talk especially about uh, Genesis 3 today, the very beginning, Genesis 14, and then two Psalms, 22 and 110. Okay, what better place to start than Genesis? <coughs> That's the beginning. Uh, 3.15 is a very familiar story. Um, it has to do with Adam and Eve. This takes place right after the original son, sin. Um, Eve has eaten the forbidden <coughs> apple, and God is not happy. And this is what God says. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, he's talking to the serpent now, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and hers, he, he being the Christ, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Um, this sort of sets a stage for everything in the rest of the Bible. It's the eternal uh, argument, fight, between good and evil. But the good part is that Christ steps on the head of the serpent. He winds up killing the serpent. Christ wins. That's the last part. But in the meantime, the serpent, that is Satan, is gnawing on Christ's heel, as we experience through all of our history. This is the human condition. But it's the story of the eternal battle that's described in the Bible from cover to cover. And there is another piece of this scripture that a lot of philosophers think is a forbearing of the coming of Christ. And I'll share that with you. We don't want to dwell on it because I think there are more important things that we can look at. But um, some, some scholars feel like that since God was talking to Eve and talking about Eve's offspring instead of talking to Adam about his offspring, we're talking about the virgin birth here, and Eve's offspring would be um, the Christ. Eve would have been a, uh, a forbearing of the uh, of Mary, the 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 virgin. Um, reason for that is that through all other Hebrew scripture, uh, genealogy always speaks of the male, always talks about the male's offspring, and occasionally mentions so and so's mother was somebody. But the, the lineage is always traced down through the male. That's the Hebrew tradition. But in this case, God talks to Eve as the only party to this offspring. So you can see that this could be a connection between the virgin birth and the coming of Christ. But we, we don't need to go any further than that. Okay, moving on. Genesis 14. This is the so story of uh, Meshel's Hedek. Uh, um, and I'll stumble over that word, as I'm sure that you're familiar with me doing. And uh, just bear with me. In Genesis 12, um, Abraham is called by God. This is when he is told that he will be the father of a great nation. This is the beginning of the Old Covenant. This is the beginning of Hebrew history. As a matter of fact, in some Bibles, um, there is a separation between the first 11 chapters of Genesis and the beginning of chapter 12, because that's when the story of the Hebrew people really begins, with Abraham being called by God. And that establishes the Old Covenant. Um, we know that Hebrew left his home country, uh, 
Abraham left his own, own country. He went down to Egypt, and he's on his way back up into uh, Canaan. He passes by Jerusalem, and in chapter 14, Adam meets the king of Jerusalem, a fellow named Michel Zedek. We're going to talk about that quite a bit today. He's going to be an important part of the story of the Hebrew people, as we'll see. Michel Zedek, as I mentioned, is the king of Salem. That's the way it's defined in Genesis. Salem is what we call today Jerusalem. That in itself is significant. He's identified in Genesis as the priest of the Most High God. He blesses Abraham. Abraham honors him with a, a tithe and bows down to him. All of these are significant. It's important that he was identified as the priest of the Most High God because at that time there's no connection of any worship of God at all. Abraham has started his journey. He's, he is himself worshiping God, but there's no system of priests established. That comes later with Moses. Um, Michel Zedek blessed Abraham. That means that he is higher than Abraham. Blessings always go from the higher party down to the second party. God blesses us. We don't bless God. Okay? And Abraham honors him with a tithe. That means Abraham hum humbled himself and, uh, and paid homage to Michelle Zedek. Okay? Simple things, but they're going to be important to us a little bit later on. I tried to do some research on Michelle Zedek, and I found several references. Um, and I guess that one of the most important to me was one found in the Life Applications Bible. Um, very familiar with Bible. The footnotes there are just outstanding, and they mean a lot to me. Um, and in the footnotes, they gave several ideas that could refer to Michelle Zedek. Um, Michelle Zedek. The first one is an earthly appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ in a temporary bodily form. Now, that's a suggestion. A lot of words there. It's almost like they tried to get around saying anything particularly positive, but uh, just, just bear with me on that. It could have been a, uh, a pre-indication of the Christ, Christ in a bodily form. Of course, we know that later on he came to earth as a, as a child, and I think that, that is the hang-up on this particular definition. They also refer to him as a type of Christ. Now, type doesn't mean the same thing that we normally think of as being a, a, a type of person or something like that. Type <laughs> refers to a pre-description of an event that will take place later on in the Bible. And in this case, a type would be a an indication of some important event that was about to happen as the coming of Christ. Other sources indicate that Michel Zedek was um, Shem, uh, a son of Noah, still around at the time of Abraham. Now, that would have been hundreds of years, and I don't want to argue with that. I just wanted to pass it on to you. Um, and we know, to, know, too, that Michel Zedek was very important to the early Christian church, especially those communities that had a Hebrew background. Um, and they saw it as a linkage back into their Hebrew tradition. They were Christian churches, but they still had a lot of connection with the past, and they saw that Michel Zedek um, uh, had provided that linkage back into uh, the Old Testament. Um, okay, 
enough on Michelle Zedek for the moment. Let's move into Psalms. Psalm 22 is just an unbelievable description of the crucifixion of Christ. Um, it is so vivid that when you when you read that and you understand the horror of it, it's 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 almost hard to to read. I found it that way. Um, there there is so much cruelty expressed in the the first part of Psalm 22 that it's a, it's a little bit overwhelming. Uh, to me, it's even more overwhelming than what you find uh, in the in the gospel stories themselves. Um, we also know that this, the first line of Psalm 22, is what we hear a lot on Good Friday. Um, and it's bewildering words. It's, it's, it's hard words for us to take. Um, I sit in the Good Friday service, and I'm sure that all of you have experienced the same thing. This is, this is the most meaningful service that we have in the calendar year, as far as I'm personally concerned. Um, these particular words from Christ on the cross are of no, no exception. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Excuse me, I get choking, choked up about that. <clears throat> because there is so much despair, there is so much distress, there is so much uh, pain expressed in, in those words. Um, but in, in doing a little bit of research on this thing, I found... Um, an amazing discovery. We just look at those words. Those, that's the first line of Psalm 22. But in reading some of Lee, Lee Strobel's material, I found out that those words don't just refer to the first line. They refer to the whole psalm. Uh, Jesus is referring to himself as being represented by all of Psalm 22. The, the, the Psalms at that point in time in history had not been numbered. It was typical for people to refer to a Psalm by the first line. And when you think about that then, it changes your perspective of the, of Psalm 22 a good bit. And it changes your perspective of the words of Jesus on the cross. At least it did for me. Because if Jesus is using the entire Psalm to describe his experience on the cross. Sure, there's a lot of pain there, but toward the end of Psalm 22, there is words of hope, and then if you get to the end, there are words of triumph. So, it, it's like Christ was saying to us on the cross, uh, I'm experiencing all of this pain. It's tough, but I'm not giving up my faith. I know that my Father is there to come to rescue me, and I know that he will fulfill the promise of the future of glory in heaven. Um, this changed my experience completely. Let's, let's look at, uh, at Psalm 22 now. And I'm going to read uh, selected verses. And a couple of you last week said that uh, you would appreciate it if I would give you an exact Bible reference. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not prepared to do that. And the reason is that when when I have gone through this, I've tried to select verses that I think will be meaningful to you in the sequence that they will be meaningful, not exactly the way it is listed in our Bible. So if you would bear me bear with me on this. Now this is after the first line. The first line is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, sounds of despair, certainly. Total despair. 
And then he talks about all of the pain on the cross. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him so much. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away from me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Um, that's a broken piece of pottery. And my tongue stricks, sticks to the roof of my mouth. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Um, just a truly vivid express expression of Christ in pain and agony on the cross. And uh, we read those and um, it's, it's disturbing. It's disturbing to me. Okay, but things changes, change when we get to verse 19 and 21. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Um, words of hope. He's turning around. He's recognizing that the Father will save him. Come quickly, he says. He's in pain but he knows that God has not forsaken him, as opposed to the first uh, word, uh, first line in the psalm. And then in the end, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And boy, that's the way it turned out. Um, it's a uh, truly amazing story. And this is a Psalm of David now. He's writing these words 600 years before Christ, but he's describing Christ's experience on the cross so vividly that it's just a little bit overwhelming. And you, you have to stand in awe. How could that happen. Okay, um, let's move on to the next slide. Psalm 22, the risen Christ, and I've already, I'm behind on my slides. Psalm 22 is the risen Christ, and that's, those are the words that I just used. Triumph, victory, sit at my right hand. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. This is Psalm 110. Thank you for getting me back on. Thank you, Lord. Um, we're now in Psalm 110. I have left Psalm 22. And Psalm 110 is a description of the risen Christ. It's almost like a continuation of Psalm 22. And here we talk about triumph and victory. He's promised to, that God will have him sit at his right hand. He's promised to be raised as a king. You will rule in the midst of your enemies, arrayed in holy majesty. And then this last part. You are a priest forever in the order of Meshelzedek. Something spiritual is going on here, folks. This is the first time Meshelzedek has been mentioned since Genesis. He disappears into Hebrew history, but somehow David, in writing Psalm 110, brings him back. Maybe they've been talking about him all along, and he just doesn't show up anywhere else in, in, our, um, in our scriptures. But here it is coming up in Psalm 110. And it's important, as we'll 
get to in just a minute. Okay, now the big question. We have talked about prophecies over and over again now for the three past three weeks. We've looked at the ones that uh, that came from David. We've looked at the ones that came from Isaac. We have looked at the ones that came from Isaiah. We have looked in the ones that came from Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. We've looked at the ones that are listed in, in Genesis that we talked about today. So they had all of these scriptures. How on earth could the Hebrew people have missed him when he came? Well, I think that there are some relatively simple answers. Uh, the first one is that the Pharisees didn't want to see him. They were totally satisfied with the status quo. They didn't want Jesus coming in to upset them. Um, the Pharisees were the leaders of the people. They were the educated. They were the elite. And uh, um, it's obvious that they didn't want their uh, prestige um, interrupted. I'm satisfied that some of them were corrupt. Jesus was coming in and interrupting their lifestyle. He was taking their income away. So Jesus was a threat to their prestige, a threat to their income, a threat to their leaderships. They, they were used to being the big dog in the community. And suddenly here Jesus is coming along, attracting a lot of people away from the Pharisees. So it's natural that they should um, not want him around. And I'm satisfied, too, and we certainly see it in the gospel story, that they led a people, led the people astray. They stirred up the people, a few of them, against Jesus. And I know it's 2,000 years later, but it's not totally unlike what we're seeing in the Middle East today. We've got masses and masses of people that are easily excited by their religious leaders. And uh, uh, if we don't look out, it's going to get pretty scary over there. Um, just wanted to pass that on. I'm sure you feel the same way. Okay, another reason that they missed him is that it had been a long, long time since the prophets had been around. Um, the last prophets would have died several hundred years prior to that. Um, we don't know why there was that gap. Uh, during that gap, we had a lot of activity on the part of the Maccabees, the years before Jesus. The, the Romans were in control, and they ruled the Hebrew nation with an iron fist, uh, allowed them certain flexibility that the Pharisees took advantage of. But uh, um, still, it had been a long period of time in there when we had, had any strong prophets. And the people at the time, let's face it, they wanted David back. They wanted a king. They wanted a warrior to come in and uh, and take over the role of the Messiah. They wanted David back, a strong military leader, somebody that could beat the Romans up and send them back to Rome. Um, several times in the last couple of weeks, I have mentioned a fellow named Michael Brown. Michael Brown, now, uh, you're not familiar with the name, I know. He is a, a, a Jewish scholar, um, a former extremely conservative Hebrew, uh, his family is from uh, New York, a uh, New York Jew, about as Jewish as you can get. Um, he's now a Christian missionary. And he came to accept Christ by, through the study of these prophecies because he is overwhelmed, as I have been, about how they have been fulfilled in the, in the scriptures themselves. 
Uh, he looks at this, this thing and he says, there is no way you can deny that Christ was the Messiah. And he takes an interesting perspective, and I'd like to, to, to read, you, read you what he says at this point in time about the coming Messiah. And it's about the role of the Hebrew people. Think in terms of the Hebrew people thinking of themselves as God's chosen people. Well, here's what one Jewish scholar says, has to say about that. He says that from the beginning, God's intent was to not have the, he, the, the Israel nation remain an isolated nation, but that through Israel, the Hebrew nation, the entire world could come to know the one true God. Um, God's chosen people, but that's not the end of the story. God chose them to do the task of bringing God into the uh, Jesus into the world, paving the way, if you will. All of the Old Testament was in preparation for the coming Messiah. But the bottom line is that preparing the day for a Christ that would be the Savior of the world, not necessarily limited to the Hebrew nation. I think those are pretty amazing words coming from a former very orthodox Jew. And Brown says that instead of looking for a warrior king, a, a political figure, they need to be looking for a priestly messiah. And that leads in very, very well, leads us in to the story of Christ and the crucifixion itself. Um, in the Hebrew tradition, um, the role of the priest was to deal with sin. The, the Hebrew priest served as the intermediary between God and the people. The Hebrew uh, priest was responsible for presenting the sacrifices to God. And in the highest of, the, of these sacrifices, they were presented in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem and only presented by the very high priest. The sacrifices always involved something very pure. The purest form of sacrifice they could come up with was typically a, a, a gentle lamb, but the lamb had to be without blemish. The sacrifice always involved the death of the lamb. In order to be really, really good, the sacrifice had to involve blood, the letting of blood being the ultimate sacrifice of this uh, supposedly sinless figure, this little lamb as an atonement for the people's sins. Um, I think the Hebrew people had a pretty good understanding of sin, and they had a pretty good understanding of the sacrifices that were invo involved in, um, in atonement from that sin, but they didn't understand the ultimate sacrifice. Let's think about Jesus on the cross. If you're looking for something pure, if you're looking for something sinless, what more perfect sacrifice could you come up with? Brown makes that point. I just think that's super. Um, what could be more perfect than a sinless man, the Son of God? And we know, of course, that uh, uh, Christ presented himself on the cross as that ultimate sacrifice. But where was the priest? We're not in the temple now, and there's no priest around. Well, we see that Christ was the priest himself. That's the reason that Brown puts a lot of emphasis on looking for Christ as a priestly Messiah rather than a political king. That's the reason that the Hebrews missed the point, but we understand it today. Um, 
I think that really uh, we go, we've got to go one step further, and this is where we bring back in Michelle Zedek. God wanted to be, uh, make it abundantly clear that Christ came to be the perfect sacrifice for all of the people of the world, not just the Hebrew nation. And that's the point that Brown was making, to, making also. And if you really look at the thing, under the Hebrew law, Christ was not even qualified to be a priest. The priest had to come from Aaron, had to be the high priest, had to be a descendant of Aaron. Christ was not. You had to be at least be a Levite. Christ was not a Levite either. He was from the house of David. So something had to change. The Hebrew law was not really sufficient for this situation. I think God's telling us something again. It's, it's again a case of um, God's plan for the world taking a major turn. God saying that the old covenant is passed away. The new covenant is about to begin. Christ has come to save the world. He's separating himself from the Hebrew nation. Raised as a Jew, certainly a product of the Hebrew nation, a product of all of the Old Testament history that we've been talking about. But something new is about to happen. And he goes one step further to prove it and convince us of that point. Let's get back to Mezhelzadek. Psalm 110.4 The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Praise the Lord for that. You are a priest forever in the order of Meshelzedek. He's talking about Christ. A priest forever in the order of Meshelzedek. Okay. All right. So Christ is a priest, but he's not of the order of Aaron. He's not a Levite. He goes back to Meshelzedek. Now let's look back at Genesis 14 and you'll see how all of this is falling in place. In Genesis 14, it tells us that Meshelzedek was there before Abraham came along. He was already a high priest when Abraham was on his way back to um, uh, through leaving Egypt and headed back up through the Holy Land, what we call the Holy Land today. He wasn't a part of the Hebrew nation. His order precedes the Hebrew law. Christ's death on the cross applies to all nations because of the linkage to the order of Meshelzedek. Something new has happened. God's plan has made a major turn. And praise the Lord for that. We're here today because of it. Okay, it is an amazing story. It's overwhelming when you think of what's presented here. The story starts in Genesis that we talked about here today. It's written by someone prior to Moses' time. Now, we don't know who wrote Genesis. Tradition says that Genesis was written by Moses sometime during the Exodus. Well, Moses had to do a lot of writing, but let's, let's just take that. Tradition also says that, we had, that Moses had some documents with him that he used to complete the book of Genesis. That means that somebody had to write this stuff down, folks, before the time of, of Moses' Somewhere around 1500 B.C. The story is continued in Psalms. We talked about the gap in Meshelzedek, not mentioned anywhere between Genesis and Psalms. And that would have been David's time, around 1000 B.C. The Psalms were probably rewritten during the exile, 586 B.C. And they are somehow fulfilled in 34 A.D. Now that is astonishing. 
That blows your mind when you think of the number of people that had to have touched this story between the time it originated and the time of Christ when it was fulfilled. Now, if that doesn't convince you of the truth of our Bible, I, I rest my case. I'm sorry. You're unconvincible. I, I, I'm just overwhelmed by that. It has to have been inspired by God. It has to be the way God's plan is defined in the scriptures. How it's all laid out. And the amazing thing is that all of it had to be in place. All of it had to be in God's mind before creation. He planned it all out. And it's happening. It happened. Just like he said it would. Okay, we're not through. We said that Michel Zedek was the king of Jerusalem. Okay, let's accept that. King of Jerusalem before Abraham's time. All right, now let's flip back to Revelation 22. We read about the new Jerusalem, God's holy city. We're wrapping things up. This is the end of time. It began in Jerusalem. It ends in Jerusalem, God's holy city. From Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end, God's plan is revealed to us through the Holy Scriptures, just like Jim McCormick mentioned, just like our friend um, Hallie, 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 uh said in his book. It's an amazing story. And you look at it and you come to one conclusion. How can anybody possibly believe or not believe that there is God? We talked about Ms. Powers the first uh, time we were here. Ms. Powers says she does psychic readings, and she's got one little word of truism in her sign. Truism, life is a journey. Okay, I'll go along with that part of it. But then she says, are you on the right path? A good question. But I'm not sure I want to depend on Mrs. Powers to tell me what the right path is. Come back next week. We're going to talk more about the king. We're talking about the prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And we'll get pretty close to Revelation. Um, and I'm not sure how this is going to turn out. I have not put the fourth lesson together yet. Um, and You're not going to change the end. <laughs> Roger, I wouldn't change it. <laughs> oh, well. If I change the end, everything I have been trying to tell you for the last three weeks is totally false. And I wouldn't want you to think that at all. Uh, it's a question of how we get there. Um, just a couple of things I'd like for you to, con to contemplate. Um, we talked about God's plan, and we're going to talk about that next week, next week also. Think about this next week, uh, in the next few days, and let's have these thoughts in mind as we come to next, uh, next week. Do you think God's plan includes a lot of detail? Do you think God's plan includes helping you find a parking place at the mall? Just don't want to answer that right now, but how detailed is God's plan? Okay, next question. Do you think God influences daily events like political situations or the weather or whatever? Is that a part of God's plan? Just keep those in mind. I've got my own opinion on those very definitely but uh, i'd just like to hear your opinions also but we'll wrap things up here it's time for us to to go to dinner and let's close with a prayer holy god you've blessed us in so many ways we're 
humbly grateful for all of your blessings. I'm grateful for you giving me the opportunity to uh, share my beliefs with this group of people here today, and I appreciate their patience in bearing with me as I've stumbled through this three weeks of, of, of lessons. Be with us now. We praise you, we love you, and in everything that we do, we, we just see the evidence of you in our lives, and we I just praise you for that and honor you for that. Be with us now. Bless our dinner tonight, and give us a safe journey throughout this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.